We are speaking with uh, Loverboy's Mike Reno, of course, a great Canadian artist. And as we say here in Montreal, uh, bonjour, uh, Mike. How are you? Bonjour, Mitch. Comment ça va? Ça va très, très bien. So much to talk about, but we are going to focus mostly here on the 40th anniversary of the first album, Loverboy. But, of course, now we're in 2021, so we're actually in the 40th anniversary of Get Lucky. So we, we've got two great albums to, uh, to, to talk about. But let me, let me get started on the first one, because this one was sort of everything fell into, into place. Um, you know, f- from Bruce to, to Barbara to Bob to Mike, it's just it was all these guys that came together. Talk to me a little bit about the, the Vancouver scene at that time and how... Uh, lively it was and and were you guys sort of all sort of sticking together and and it just became this great scene that led to this first album well you know we came to vancouver from calgary to record and actually to get together with bruce allen our manager and we we needed him to be in our team and we knew it so we we kind of came out here so we were a little bit um uh fresh out here but the music scene was fantastic there was clubs everywhere we were playing everywhere we're writing songs. We were writing with different people. We had different people come in and rehearse with us. And I, I just remember it just clicking. Paul and I clicked right off the bat. So we, we just started writing these songs. I mean, who knew they were going to be around 40 years later? I mean, I didn't. Yeah, I know. Can you imagine? So so talk to me about how we got to this, to this first album. You know, here it is, November of 1979. The Kiss Dynasty tour rolls into Vancouver Pacific Coliseum. You open up for them. <laughs> And then, you know what? Four or five months later, you're you're, you're recording this album that has been five times platinum. The kid is hot tonight. Turn me loose are as iconic as any song from the '80s. How did you go from being opening for Kiss to writing these songs? Were these songs that you've had sitting in a pile for 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 ten, twenty years, and you brushed them up, or how did this all come together? Well, Paul and I were in bands. Uh, a lot of the guys were in other bands. Most of the guys were in other bands first. And so we had met and started writing fresh. We Paul and I started writing fresh. Doug kicked in and he wrote a few songs with us. Um, it was a real nice uh, package. We didn't have a whole pile of songs kicking around. We had this many songs. We we actually had the, the luxury, and this doesn't happen very often, of playing in nightclubs and seeing how people reacted to the songs, which really gave us a little bit of a heads up because we could tell if we place a certain song and nobody even looked at you. You just kind of went, well, let's, let's put that one off to the side. You come in with the kid at hot tonight and all of a sudden everybody's looking at you. They're up on the dance floor. They're giving us the fist and the same for turn me loose. And, you know, t- uh, anyway, and so on and on, it was just a wonderful way to try out new songs and and we were we had that luxury we we didn't have that luxury for the second album other than the fact that we played so many concerts in 1980 that when we went in the studio in 81 we were just completely uh, we were ready we were rolling we only took three days off from getting home from tour to going in the studio so there's there's two different concepts you know one was like we've been working real hard and trying them out in nightclubs and one was we just went into the studio as soon as we finished tour. Yeah, well, okay, so, so talk to me about that, because in, in this day and age, and, and I talk to many artists, they'll say, well, 
we don't want to try any of our songs live anymore because they'll end up on YouTube and then, you know, how important was that for you to actually have that live experience with the songs before you put them to to the record, uh, you know, to sort of work out the parts and, and, and figure out, like you said, the crowd reaction? Is that something that we've lost in the social media age? I think we have. Let, let me just remind the, our listening audience that when we came out, internet wasn't around. Nobody had cell phones. It wasn't even invented. And uh, YouTube was just not even invented either. So there was none of that. You could actually play. We, we had lineups. Like when, when we, we did concerts, like we, we did a, a, like a week in, in a nightclub. But the second night, just from word of mouth, no internet, no cell phones, word of mouth, there was a lineup the next day. So we knew we had something going on. And we were really enjoying that. So we could try out the songs. And if they if they liked them, then we knew they were going to be, probably be special songs. I didn't think they'd be around 40 years from now, once again. But I knew they'd be special. It, it certainly turned out. Now, uh, you mentioned before that the, the Vancouver scene was happening and you, you moved out from Calgary. Were, were Was the reputation something that you had been hearing about and said, okay, I, we need to get there? Because you look at Frazier, who ends up going off and doing stuff with, with Guns N' Roses. You look at Bob Rock, who goes off and does stuff with Motley Crue. Bruce, of course, who, who does everybody in the 80s. Uh, you know, Mark LaFrance is hanging around the studios. Bruce, uh, Brian Adams, Jim Valens. What was it about Vancouver yeah. that just had this concentration of talent and and was there a, a, a moment in the Canadian scene where people from Toronto and Montreal and Calgary said, holy, f- we got to go there. <laughs> you know what? People did come here. Yeah. I, I remember we were in the studio. We had lots of, lots of things. You know, we had time to do stuff and we had all kinds of things going for us. But next thing, you know, we couldn't get any studio time. Why? Because Bon Jovi came to town. They wanted to record. Motley Crue came to town. They wanted to record. In the same place we recorded, I kind of took it as a compliment. Like, I think, you know, people thought if we could sound like that, let's go to Vancouver. We'll try to we'll get that sound. And it, it's true. To, it's true to a lot because um, Bob Rock became hugely famous. Mike Fraser used to be our tape guy. He would put on the tape and he'd, 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 he'd make sure everything was great. And he was a second engineer and he was at a learning stage at that time. Now he's make, make a recording and mixing ACDC albums. You know what I mean? So these guys, uh, we all came up the, the rung together. And you're right. Uh, on one one side of the room, there'd be Brian Adams or Trooper uh, cutting a record, and next on the other side of the record, we'd be doing backup vocals on uh, uh, Motley Crue albums and stuff. And Mark LaFrance was 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 in was in a band, and he was uh, the top studio guy in town. He'd got the high voice; he could sing all the parts. So when when we needed crowd vocals, a lot of us there'd be seven or eight of us get together around a microphone. We record this chant uh, ten times, and that would be like a hundred people singing. And so that's kind of what we, we used to go from studio to studio, helping bands out. It was a really fun time. I I, I mean, I kind of miss that. Yeah, I kind of do too. And and it's funny because there's. There's a shot that Mark sent me the, not too long ago, and it's him at a Motley Crue session, and you've got Jack Blades, Steven Tyler, Mark, you know, Brian, and they're all singing background, vo- and you're going, wait a minute, they're all singing background vocal? <laughs> it's like, that's like the best of the 80s right there. How are they just singing on? Um, was that part of what you were doing too? Were, were you also going into the, the Bon Jovi sessions and the Aerosmith sessions and, and singing backgrounds as well? Absolutely. Whoa. 
living on a prayer. You know what I mean? That was sung by about eight or ten people ten times to get that sound. And if they called us in, we went out, we went down, did it. We did it as a favor for Bruce Fairburn. And um, we do it for whoever. And people kind of said, you want some You want some vocals? We're doing it on Wednesday. Drop by the studio. And it was just fun. I mean, you come in there, there's a pinball machine, everybody's sitting in the back lounge, get, and they're mixing in the other room or they're recording. And it was just like alive. It was buzzing with energy. We, we've kind of lost that in the in the industry now because now if Bon Jovi said, "Hey, come and sing on Living on a Prayer," you'd be like, "Well, you know, you got to talk to my agent, and I don't do it for less than three thousand a set." I mean, right? It's, have we lost that? Have we lost that camaraderie of, of rock? Well, a lot of times, I, I I'd have to say overall we have kind of lost that. Um, it's just well, this particular year was kind of, or last year was kind of a grunty year all the way around. We're not supposed to be in a room with anybody other than family members, as you know, and so everything's changed right now. But overall, just in general, a lot of people cutting records in their living room. I mean, they open up their laptop, they plug in a microphone system, and sing over a bed track. I mean, they don't even go to the studios anymore. A lot of the studios are, are shut down because of that. And I miss that. I miss standing in a big room, pounding away with headphones on and sweat and a towel, and you know, and a, you know, and then afterwards you'd go out for for a beer. And I, I miss that. And yeah. I hope to do it again. I'd like to record Lover Boy's next album, the way we used to record, all of us in the room, playing away, sweating away, yeah. uh, and putting in our energy. That's what I want to do for the next album. I don't want to do it over the internet. Like some people do. Well, yeah, the uh, the old send me an MP3 and I'll lay my my vocal on it and send it back to you. So so then that there is a chance for for new music because listen, I, I have seen Loverboy up and down the you know you you've opened. When was the last time I saw you? Oh, oh in Santia Saint Quebec, I saw you. But you also opened up for was it Journey? Yeah, you opened up for Journey for a while up here. But. Yeah, we did a whole tour through America and, and, and Canada, North America. That's right. But it, it's it's easy for you to just go play the hits and not be bothered. So are, are you at that point now where, where you sort of want to be bothered to make new music and, and get those creative juices and, and have the, 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 you know, the tug and pull with the, with the band members of what's right and what's wrong? Because obviously you can just show up, play the hits, go home, you know. You know what's funny? I, I tell I tell people this is the strangest thing, but we we will spend uh, a few months writing some new songs. Paul and I are writing some songs and recording right now, but what'll happen is we'll we'll play them live and nobody's ever heard of them because you can't nobody really buys records anymore and you can't really get it out there anyhow. So nobody hears the songs. So you you play you play about five hits and then you throw a couple new songs in and everybody gives you the weird look and buggers off to the bathroom you know it's like uh okay well let's not do that tomorrow and uh and then so you just stop playing these new songs i could write the best song i've ever written in my whole life like the hotel california of my of my life and i don't think it would ever hit the radio because i i follow in a, i fall into a genre called classic rock and classic rock radio only plays stuff that's 25 years old you know what I mean? We got, we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And all the other radio stations, they won't touch us with a 10-foot pole. I mean, yeah. I don't hear any new ACDC on, on the radio. You hear all the old stuff, 
uh, I don't hear any new cheap trick on the radio. You hear all the old stuff. I know all these people. I know they got new albums. I always get them and listen to them, and I love them. But that's yeah. me. It, it used to be you'd sell all these records, and then you could go on tour, and they'd, they'd all know the songs before you got to town. But that's not the case anymore. I, I got to tell you, I agree wholeheartedly with that because... I, you know, I deal with a lot of the, the heritage acts, classic rock acts, whatever you want to call them, and they have great new albums. And you're right, the last Cheap Trick was great. The last, uh, you know, uh, there's a band in England called Thunder, all great. And they can't get played, and I don't understand why the Hair Nations or the classic rock... Just, you know, on a Sunday night, have one hour of here's what these bands are up to now, or just something. Uh, it's you're, you're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. And by the way, just quick, uh, since we're talking about singles... Uh, on January 18th, 1986, Lover Boys, This Could Be the Night, debuted at number 87 on Billboard's Hot 100. So there you go. Historic, historic fact. I got a, somebody, just, somebody just sent me a Billboard clipping, and uh, Lover Boys Get Lucky, uh, the album, was number three on the Billboard charts. And I went, oh my God. And you know who was below us was Foreigner and The Cars, all these bands we looked up to. And we somehow got in there, and I was just blown away. You know, it's an old picture of a picture kind of thing, but it was it was great to have. Oh, it's absolutely great. So you, you've mentioned Foreigner, you mentioned ACDC, both uh, produced by Robert Mutt Lang. We all love Mutt. You worked with him for the song Loving Every Minute of It. Um, he was on fire back then. Was there any time where... You and Mutt said, hey, you're going to produce one of our albums and, you, and you're going to work with us. I mean, in a sense, why was it limited to the, sort of that one song? Really, he was just a songwriter in that one. Um, he actually had a version of it recorded. And like, like I said, I know some of your people aren't going to believe this, but there was no Internet back then. So what he did is he played it on the telephone. <laughs> he held the telephone up to the speakers and we recorded it on a little ghetto blaster. And then we sat and listened to it and re, you know, and learned the song the way he'd written it. And then I wished he was producing this, but he basically gave us the song uh, arrangement that was perfect. And we just stuck pretty close to his arrangement. And, uh, and that's, I wished, and I would have loved to work with the, I'd still love to work with him. He's a genius, but he's hard to get, he's hard to get in the studio. He's, he's, he's a high demand. Oh, but he, he's just absolutely brilliant. So let me go back to the uh, to the first album, which we're we're talking about here. Forty years. You have uh, Barbara uh, Asman who does the uh, the artwork. So you look at this team from Barbara, from you guys, from the production team, like we mentioned, uh, uh, you know, Bruce and Bob. And you were all sort of rookies at the time. Um, talk to me a little bit about the artwork, and then you know she she became something of a you know art expert or, or or famous artist afterwards what was that like all of you sort of being green and on this project and then all your careers uh blowing up afterwards <laughs> you know what i didn't know anything about barbara before and i really haven't followed her since but i'm glad you told me that because i'm going to look her up here's here's what happened and this is the beauty uh that has kind of gone away but this is kind of the long arm of a record company. They have kind of access to all kinds of things that you didn't. We were a band out of Vancouver trying our best on a budget of $60,000 to cut a whole record, which is damn near impossible, by the way. But we did it anyways. So then the record company would have got somebody to come up with the album cover, which was fantastic. 
and you know that she 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 took the words from one of our songs and she's and she tacked it onto a Polaroid and that's what gave it that splashy look. But if you look at the first album, you'll see that. Uh, uh, if you look at the album cover, you'll see that it's got lyrics on it. Those are the lyrics from one of the songs on the album. I thought it was an ingenious thing to do. Plus, it's a self picture of her sitting there, really skinny gal having a smoke. I thought this is cool. People thought we were a punk band at first. Well, you know what? I I knew that it was the the words of little girl, and I knew the Polaroid story, but I did not know that was her. That that's actually her on the cover. That's Ooh. her. She took a self portrait. Yeah. Yeah, well, you see, see, I followed after her. She, she became part of the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts, and, and she's become the cutting-edge expert in the whole sort of Polaroid photography thing. She was, you know, the avant-garde artist, and since then, exposed everywhere. And it's it's just funny because, you know, her first gig, basically, commercial gig, was your Loverboy cover. And it's like, wow, look at, look at, look at what that this... That is cool. Yeah, so so Loverboy, it first, it launched your career. <laughs> you know, it certainly helped Bruce. It certainly helped Bob. It certainly helped Mike. Uh, it's it's just it's like as Canadian as as anything you could ever uh, could ever imagine. It's it's, and that gives that gives me a warm feeling in my in my soul, really. That uh, we all started together. I remember uh, just to give you the example of how uh, it started. Really, I I used to come to the studio and I'd say to Mike. How did you get here so early? Because I heard he lived in Langley, which is, you know, 60 miles out of town kind of thing. And he says, uh, I've been sleeping under the board. It's nice and warm under there, under the mixing board. And you know what I mean? Because he was cleaning up and putting stuff away and getting mics set up and untangling cords, getting the tapes ready. So he was almost working constantly. So he started off as the second engineer and he's gone right to the top. Now that makes me feel good. Bob's the same way, and he's they're all still very close to us, good friends. Yeah. I golf with Mike Fraser. Yeah. I mean this is a this is a great story. And I actually that's the part that makes me love talking about it. It's like we all came up together. Yeah, and in such a short period of time, again, like from the KISS concert to five time platinum selling to here we are forty years later. It's amazing. Um let me ask you about quickly about Paul Dean because when you when you think of Canadian guitarists, you know we think Rick Emmett and Alec Lifeson, but there are two particularly that I find: um, Keith Scott with Brian Adams and Paul Dean, who who sometimes uh, seem to be left out of the conversation, and yet both are absolutely essential to the sound of their bands. Um, would, first of all, would you agree with that that that, that Keith and and Paul are just beyond? You know they're just they're just great guys. Um, talk to me about working with him and 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 his guitar style and what he actually means to the sound. Well, Paul was part of the production crew too. Not only did you write the songs and and with me and and we worked together on on the music with the band, but he uh, uh, he was producing some of the stuff too, or co-producing it with with the with um, uh, Bruce Fairburn. And we worked with the Bob Rock on a few other projects. Paul's really into the music. Uh, he has worked hard on his sound. He created a sound that he really loves. He builds his own guitars. He modifies all his amplifiers. He's constantly working at sound check to have a sound or get a different sound or change the sound. And the reason he maybe doesn't get talked about much is because he doesn't really like to do the interviews. He would rather just be dinking around at Soundcheck or down in his recording studio making, 
you know, making music. Uh, he doesn't really want to be the, the guy doing the interviews. He, well, he will, but he doesn't do them very often. Um, but Paul Which is funny that you mentioned that because my first, yeah. my first two ever Loverboy interviews were with Paul. They were like, oh, Mike doesn't do interviews. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, you know what it is? I, when I used to work five days a week doing arena shows every night, I tried not to talk during the day. You know, I had to sing for two hours. I didn't need, I had to be very, yeah, I tried to be careful. And then as we, you know, became more popular stuff, people want to talk to me. It's like, you know, when you think of the Rolling Stones, you, you know, you want to talk to Mick, right? So that's basically the way it is. It's got nothing to do with who's smarter or who's better. Or no, of who's, course. Who's more famous. It's just the fact that, you know, and plus I know a lot of the stories. I was there for everything. I mean, I was there for it all. Huh? And Paul can tell you some too. But you know what's funny is Paul will tell the same story differently. Well, of He's course. He's got different memories of it. And, and that's normal, I guess. But I will say something and then Paul will say this, do the same kind of deal. And he'll, he'll go a whole different way with it. Like I'll say I went out for sushi and he'll say he was fixing his amplifiers and ended up talking to a guy who came over with a guitar and they rebuilt it. And I'm saying, we're down at the thing having a beer and some sushi, you know, it's like two different, you know, it's the same two, night, but two different stories. Two, two different facts of the same thing. Just uh, real quick before, when you said that uh, living on a prayer, did, did you sing on the Bon Jovi album on, on Slippery When Wet? And did you sling, sing on the Molly Crew stuff and the Aerosmith stuff too? Or is that? Uh, I probably did. It was all, we were singing everything. We sang everybody's stuff. Oh, that's great. And, uh, and yeah, and internally, if they would help sing our stuff, if they were there, they'd come and sing Love in Every Minute of it. There's a whole pile of people singing on that one, too. Wow. See, and, and, you know, when you talk to to Brian Adams, they're like, well, Lou Graham sang on my Cuts Like a Night. And you're like, what? How how did that happen? Um, Going from the first album over to Get Lucky, you know, you've had the success, the, the songs are doing well, it's it's well produced. What was the pressure like going into, into Get Lucky? Was the record company sort of breathing down your back going, okay, we need another Turn Me Loose, we need another This Kid's Out of we need another whatever? Or was it mostly <laughs> um, do what you do? How much pressure was that second album? Because it also, now 40 years exceptionally iconic and of course the the, the album cover um what was that period like after this this first album comes out going into the second one well we were on tour i don't even remember um we wrote songs during soundcheck we wrote songs in our rooms we wrote songs in our tour bus we we uh would try things out at rehearsal and then we had a little break uh, Paul came back for he took a little trip had a little vacation for like five days he came back with the the beginning of uh, working for the weekend which was completely different but we changed it and made it the way it is today and he um, he would start songs and him and I would finish them and the band would get together and we'd all add our parts and stuff it was interesting we didn't have time much I tell people that he goes oh, it must have been great you guys are like in your mid 20s and you know and I go you know what? We work so much that it's hard to remember. We never thought, sat around and go, "This is great." You know, we're doing really great. We never said that. We just, we just kept working. And it's really, it's really weird. I think back now, and it's not like we missed anything. We were concentrating on what we were doing to the point where we didn't do anything but that. 
Well, yeah, you worked and you worked. Well, here, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll start wrapping up with this, but, you know, you look at the work, you look at the pressure, you look at the tours, whether it's Cheap Trick or ZZ Top or Bob Seger or whoever, uh, you look at the album's success, you have managed to stay the band for these 40 years or 41 years. You, you, you there, There's no Mike Reno solo album with six extra guys. There's not the Mike Reno band playing Loverboy's greatest hits. How did you manage to keep it together and not want to throw each other out of the window and not want to, ugh, I'm never talking to Paul again. He's a, how did you keep it together? Well, we, Paul and I decided to take, take some time picking the band members out. We wanted to pick guys, pick guys out to be in our band that would go the distance. And I think we pulled it off. And I can say that now. But at the beginning, we just wanted to be with pe- these people. Not only were they great musicians, but they were also great human beings. And it's been a pleasure. And we respect each other. We love each other's talents. And we love to play together. We travel together. We play together. We're still doing it. And if it wasn't for this damn COVID, we would have done another 85 shows this year. We only did 20. Yeah. And, and they've all, all been good. And I'll, uh, I'll finish with this last question. Uh, what did Bruce Fairburn mean, mean to you and to your sound? Bruce Fairburn was kind of like, uh, do you remember when you really looked up to your dad? And he wasn't that much older than us, but he kind of treated us like we were his kids. And he made sure that we worked together and played nice. You know what I'm getting at? Played nice. Don't go all crazy up here. Just stick stick with what you're doing. And then he would work individually with the guys and he would keep everybody's attitudes up. And he would say, let's do it again. You know how some producers come in and they change everything? Yep. He just recorded us the way we were. He let us play our instruments and he played and he recorded. And then he would say, well, we don't need that part. We don't need that part. But that part and that part are excellent. So let's just focus on that and we'll just drop that other part. That, that was kind of where he came in. So he let us play our own instruments and do our own thing. We were recorded naturally. You see, that's great. And, and that's what I liked about his production because, you know, listen, I love Mutt Lang and I think what he did with Hysteria and Foreigner for all great. But sometimes it, it, it seems to lack that organic feel. And then you listen to what he does with Permanent Vacation and Slippery When Wet and Loverboy and you just go, you know what? He's just accentuating the band. He's letting the band be the star. And it's just like, yes, that's what I like. And that's that's why I, I loved everything he did. And what an incredible loss for music when he passed away. I'm just, just awful. Oh, I awful. know. But it was a terrible time. We couldn't believe it would happen. And we, I still have a tough time. I miss him. He was a dear man. I loved him. Yeah, he, he really was. And uh, let's leave it on that. Uh, you know, uh, you know, rest in peace, Bruce. Yeah, yeah. He's a great, great guy. And uh, Mike, yeah, uh, thank you for thank you for calling in. Of course, uh, the first lover boy. And since Get Lucky is at its uh, 40th anniversary, we'll have to do a, an interview uh later on this year and talk about that one in, in fuller detail. You got it, Mitch. A real pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Merci, monsieur, as we say in Montreal. Bonsoir. Have a good night. Uh, bonsoir. Bonsoir. Cheers. <laughs>